0: So we continue on in Job, coming to the 33rd chapter, again, reading that entire chapter. Job 33, all 33 verses of that chapter. God's holy and inspired word, give your attention to the reading of it, Job 33. God's word. But now, hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth. The tongue, the tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart and what my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Surely you've spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure, without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this... You are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, while they slumber on their beds... And he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warning that he may turn aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen is stick out. His soul draws near, near the pit, his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of a thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him, and says, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy. He restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right and it was not repaid to me. He's redeemed my soul from going down to the pit and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things, twice, three times with a man, to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be lighted with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job. Listen to me. Be silent, and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. For the reading of God's word, may you bless it to us. So there's a theme in scripture that doesn't seem to get that much attention. It seems to make us uncomfortable, so we pay it little heed. And this is the motif of God's silence. Since most of the Bible trumpets the wonders of God speaking, scripture is after all the Lord's special revelation, we miss how the Lord can be quiet towards us and our prayers. And yet in the Psalms, the psalmists regularly petition God not to be silent. They plead for the Lord to rise up and to answer their cries. Just as the Father gave Jesus the silent treatment upon the cross, sometimes he offers no answers to our supplications. And yet a distinction needs to be made, for communication is a two-way street of speaking and listening. And there are times when a perceived silence is not an issue of speaking, but of hearing. If you fail to listen, then the charge of silence isn't sound. The other person spoke up, you just weren't paying attention. Now this may feel like the silent treatment by the speaker, but it is honestly a problem with your hearing. Thus, it's not unusual for us to judge God as being silent, but in reality, We just had earplugs in. Well, for a long time, we have heard Job lamenting how God refuses to communicate with him to meet him for a trial. Job is certain that God is being rudely quiet towards him. Yet Elihu, Elihu raises his hand to express that maybe, just maybe, there's an alternative explanation. So young, angry Elihu has completed his introduction and we're still unsettled about him. Positively, Elihu listened carefully, he took detailed notes, and he waited until the four senior men ran out of things to say. Negatively, though, he is a youngling who thinks he is the exception to wisdom coming with the ages, which feels a little presumptuous. Nevertheless, Elihu has hooked our curiosity so we want to hear him out, and now he launches into his main argument, which he points directly at Job. The three friends have made themselves irrelevant, so Elihu doesn't bother with them. Rather, his burden is at is pointed straight at Job, and Elihu summons Job, uh, summons to Job, is actually quite vigorous. It feels like Elihu is yelling. Hear me out, Job. Listen up, you. For Elihu is going to spit a sick beat for Job. His tongue wields reason and discerning taste. His words bubble up from the uprightness of his mind, and his lips utter sincere and candid truth. Here, Elihu promotes both the truth and piety of what he's about to say. He even brings back up the issue of how God's Spirit made him, and the Almighty's breath invigorates him. Now, Spirit here accents the ability to reason and think, and Elihu posits for himself a great measure of God's rationality. He's a genius on the Holy Spirit's IQ scale. The Spirit, being strong with Elihu then, hints at him being inspired. Now, this isn't the inspiration of a prophet, per se, but it is being filled with the mind of God. In fact, in these first uh, opening verses, verses 1 through 4, Elihu borrows at least eight terms from Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 8. Yes, he mimics Lady Wisdom to present himself as her representative, as a sort of incarnation of wisdom. This is confidence. Indeed, we feel like Elihu is using too many exclamation points. Is he being overconfident? He's so self-assured that it's a touch off-putting. But maybe he's this good. We just have to wait and see. Next, though, Elihu offers Job another chance to respond to him, and he allays any fears in Job. He says, "'Don't be afraid of me.' I have no terror to scare you. My hand isn't too heavy for you, for I'm a man like you. God pinched me off the lump of clay, just as he did you. Yet this mention of fear picks up on something that Job said earlier. In chapter 7, 9, and 13, yeah, three times, Job lamented how God's majesty and dread terrified him. The Lord's hand crushingly pressed him down. Thus Job despaired of having a trial with God, for the Lord would just overwhelm him with horror and might. Elihu, though, is not like this. The fearful splendor of God isn't with Elihu, so Job can stand and bear with him. Yet this comfort of Elihu kind of postures him as God's representative. God would drown Job in terror, so Elihu is here in his place. Elihu sort of sets himself up as a mediator between God and Job, which is interesting and makes you wonder, how accurate is this? Either way, now Elihu rehearses a point that Job has made. In fact, he roughly quotes Job in verses 9 through 11 here. He quotes Job as saying, I am pure without transgression, but God finds pretexts against me. He reckons me as my enemy. God locked me in stocks and supervises my every step. Yet, how true is this citation? As we have seen, accurate hearing has been key in this long dialogue. The friends poorly heard Job, they misquoted him, they even put words in his mouth that he didn't say. So then does Elihu quote Job well? And yes, he does. Verse 11 is lifted nearly word for word from 1327. Verse 10 comes from 1324, and verse 9 summarizes Job's many assertions to be righteous, upright and above reproach. Elihu has heard well. There's only one slight incongruity here. In verse 9, he quotes Job saying that he is transgression-free, having zero iniquity. Yet, as you'll remember, on several occasions, Job did admit that he sinned. Remember in chapter 31, Job said that he was better than Adam in that he didn't hide his sin. Thus, Job confessed his little sins, but Job was also adamant that he had not sinned in any big way to deserve his suffering. Thus, Elihu is probably referring to this overall righteousness that Job insisted upon. Thus, Elihu cites Job with a 97% accuracy, and the other 3% is merely insignificant rhetorical variation. But with this point of Job set before us, Elihu now critiques it as not being right. In this, you are not right. Though what about this quotation of Job is incorrect? Well, the error in Job isn't so much in any particular line, but it is the force of the whole. That is, Job lamented these things to express how unfair God was being towards him. God was super nitpicky of all the little things of Job, while Job was innocent of any significant transgression. And then, being locked up as an enemy, God was silent towards Job. Yes, the force of Job's words is that God is wrongly being quiet with Job. This is why Elihu goes on the way he does. He says, why do you dispute with God? God's greater than man. The Lord doesn't answer all the words of humans. Namely, Elihu's point is that God is the superior, and superiors are not beholden to every little squeak made by inferiors. As the Lord, God is not at the beck and call of his human servants. Inferiors cannot boss their masters around. And, according to Elihu, this is the narrow error of Job. The problem is not with Job's uprightness overall, nor with the fact that God treated Job like an enemy. Rather, Job is mistaken to judge God as completely silent, and that Job has a right to have God speak to him face-to-face just the way he wants. Job calls foul on God for not speaking, and he will only accept a face-to-face trial with God as a suitable response. And so in this, Elihu declares Job is not right. God does not have to answer every word from a man in the precise way that humans want to be answered. So Elihu continues, he says, God does speak he speaks once he speaks twice but man fails to perceive it oh god is talking but the people aren't listening the voice of god is there but we sense it not now at this point elihu is making a more general observation a common truth namely god doesn't have to answer our every squawk and he doesn't but he does communicate once and twice, but humans often fail to notice it. Thus now Elihu moves on to lay out a few of the ways that God does talk to us. And first up is dreams and visions. At night, when heavy slumber stretches a human out on his bed, the Lord reveals himself in dreams and visions. Now, this form of divine revelation is very much suited to the patriarchal period. This is not how God speaks to us today in the Church Age of the New Covenant. This isn't even how God communicated under the Mosaic period. Sure, under Moses, God met with prophets in dreams and visions, but this was part of their special office of the prophet. But your average lay Hebrew didn't get visions under Moses. Though in the Abrahamic period, God revealed himself to his saints by dreams. The patriarchal setting for the book of Job is evident here. Yet know what God reveals by these night visions. He says he opens man's ears, scares him with instructions, so that a man will turn from his evil deed and remove pride from men. By dreams, the Lord disciplines men and women to prevent them from doing something wrong and to humble them. When heard correctly, God's voice banishes pride from us. The voice of the Lord keeps us from doing things that we should not do. And Elihu's point here is well taken. This is true. Moreover, he pins up on the board this general truth to apply it to Job specifically. For back in chapter 7, Job confessed that God terrified him in dreams and the dread of God fell upon him during night visions. But then Job grumbled that God was silent. So Elihu prods Job. What else were your dreams but God talking? God isn't silent with you, Job. You just aren't listening. Likewise, such nightmares were meant to humble you, Job. They should make you change your ways. Yet, yet because he is deaf to God, Job proudly demands a face-to-face trial with God. Instead of withdrawing this demand to meet with God, Job has become more dogmatic that nothing but a trial will do. Hence, Job is in error. On this point, Elihu speaks the truth, and his point is new. This hasn't been made before. It's a fresh perspective. Yet God speaks once and twice, so Elihu now moves on to the second method of communication from above. In addition to dreams, the Lord uh, divulges revelation by deathbed illness. Verses 18 to 22. The Lord will bring a person to the edge of the pit. And upon the sickbed, pains correct a person. The agony emaciates one so that their flesh wastes away. All their bones can be seen through malnutrition. The cancerous person needs to eat, but food makes them nauseous. Even the sweetest delights of fine dining are foul and putrid to them. Wracked with unceasing pain skeleton in a bag of skin, and starving, the mortally ill person is under hospice care. They have one foot in the grave, and the coin to pay the boatman boat to cross the river Styx is in his hand. And such deathbed illness also possesses the voice of God. He transmits revelation through pain and disease. And this, too, Job is experiencing. He was sure that God was going to kill him. Job felt like he was standing in his own grave. Job cried of bone pain, his appetite was gone, and you could count all his bones through his transparently thin skin. Even though Job hadn't been, um, been listening well, God had been talking to him through the illness. Yet this scenario is more complex. There's a second part to it. When a person is on their deathbed, what happens next? Well, verse 19, or verse 23, there is a messenger, a mediator, one in a thousand, comes to him to declare what is right. Now verse 23 is translated as angel, but this word means messenger. Now, this messenger could be angelic or human, but at this point, it isn't clear who this messenger is. Thus, we should not prejudge. Rather, all Elihu says is that this guy's on his deathbed and a messenger comes to visit him who's a mediator. Likewise, one in a thousand could express rarity or just preciousness. Thus, we itch to know who is this precious mediator? Well, look at what the messenger does. He shows mercy to the half-dead man. He prays for him. Deliver him from the pit, O Lord, for I have found a ransom. Restore his health as youth. Then, it says God accepts the prayer. The sick man gets to see God's face with a shout of joy, and he sings to others how he sinned, but God did not punish him. As his sins deserve. And all this activity is cultic. This messenger was sent from the temple. He is a priestly mediator. For to find a ransom is a sacrificial payment. And God's acceptance is his favor upon the worshiper and his sacrifice. Likewise, seeing God's face with joy refers to grateful worship in God's presence. And not to be repaid for your sins is the aroma of God's merciful forgiveness. And the result is to be healed and rescued from falling into the pit of Sheol. This messenger is not an angel, but he's a priestly m- uh, mediator sent from the temple to minister to a man upon his deathbed. God's message through the sickness is completed By a visit from the priest. And once again, this dart of Elihu strikes its mark. Job groans and mourns in the morgue, but he has made no appeal to the cult. Job didn't send for a priest. Job showed no interest whatsoever in the ritual of the cult. And this is even more striking in that when his kids were alive, Job daily sacrificed for them. Job was a regular at the temple. He was known as on a first-name basis. But then he lost everything, and Job hasn't been back to church since. If Job isn't called a priest, then he cannot complain that God is silent. The cult and the priesthood is ready and there for Job to restore him to his righteous standing. Thus, this too is a fault in Job. Elihu points out the rather obvious. Job, you're deathly ill and you haven't called the priest and you stopped going to church. This is not healthy or wise. Moreover, Elihu remarks how God does these things two and three times for per person. Multiple times, he accepts a ransom to restore a person from death and to shine upon them the light of life. That is, God isn't stingy with such priestly mediation. It isn't a one and done. God doesn't say, you got one shot at this. No, instead, two times and three, repeatedly, God listens to the priestly prayer, he accepts the cultic ransom, and he brings the sicky back to life. There's generosity here. Ongoing charity is evident. But Job missed this. He got the sick part, but he never phoned the priest. He didn't send his wife to collect the temple mediator Thus, his complaint that God is totally silent is misplaced. It doesn't ring true. Come on, Job. You cannot say God is quiet when you didn't look to the cult. It's not fully accurate to say that God treats you like a foe when the temple hospital is still open to you. Thus, Elihu closes off this portion of his speech with another call to hear. Pay attention, Job. You aren't listening to God, so you better hear me out. Be quiet, and I will teach you wisdom. A few things, though, about uh, that stand out in this closing. One, Elihu says he wants to vindicate Job. He desires to prove Job right over the friends. This is the goodwill of Elihu. It's the proper motive to help and to do no harm. And yet to vindicate Job properly, his few errors do need to be fixed. Elihu is kind of like the teacher who hands back an A- exam so that you can correct your mistakes and get 100%. This is noble and encouraging. Second, Elihu presents himself as a teacher of wisdom. He's the master sage from whom flows the fresh, cool waters of wisdom. Now, this matches his imitation of Lady Wisdom in verses 1 through 4. And so far, Elihu's two points about how God speaks, even when humans fail to sense it, are insightful. They do exhibit some wisdom. And yet, we cannot shake the awkwardness of Elihu's tone. He utters truth, but his accent is cocky. There's a sense of smugness and conceit in Elihu. He wears the cologne, haughty number one. Okay, Elihu, you have some wisdom to share, but to dress up like Lady Wisdom, that's over the top. Therefore, we're still unresolved about Elihu. We've gone to know him better. Elihu's made some solid points. His insights are penetrating, fresh and wise, but his volume is too loud and his innotation too cocky. The ego of Elihu makes it hard to hear him out. No wonder so many commentators and readers of Job completely discount and disregard Elihu. He's saying things that are right, but he's saying them poorly. Yet despite his brash mood, we should not ignore Elihu. For he makes here a candid and beneficial argument that is good for us. Like Job, we too can get caught up in throwing ourselves a pity party. We whine about our troubles and then complain that God is too quiet. We want God to speak to us. But more so, we demand that God communicate in the way that we want it. You've heard others say it. You've likely verbalized it yourself. You're struggling with the decision. You're stuck in some dilemma, and we yell at heaven, God, just tell me what to do. Give me a sign. Meet me in a vision. Let me hear your voice, O Lord, from your own mouth. And then, when the Lord doesn't grant this, we fault God for being derelict in communication. Lord, you're just being mean by not talking. And yet, as we grouch and gripe at God's, quote, silence, we fail to hear the ways he does speak to us, namely by his word. Yes, in patriarchal times, God used visions, but in these last days, the Lord speaks to us in the word. In the inspired scriptures, read and proclaimed, God talks to you regularly, especially on the Lord's day. We beliate that God doesn't give us a sign, but his infallible word is right there at our fingertips. This is like a wife complaining that her husband doesn't write her letters. Meanwhile, he sent her 50 unread texts and a dozen sweet voicemails. This is whining that God doesn't give you a vision while failing to go to church. This is Elihu's good point. The Lord is sovereign in our relationship with him. He gets to pick the means of of communication and not us. And so we need to listen to how God speaks, which is by his word in the new covenant. Furthermore, Elihu directed us to the priesthood and the cult. Indeed, this mediator did marvelous things for this nearly dead man. He visited on his deathbed. He prayed for him. The priest found a sacrificial ransom to grant the guy a happy and healthy restoration and to bring him back to worship with God. This one in a thousand mediator described by Elihu is an amazing portrait of the one mediator between God-man, Jesus Christ. Indeed, how do, how do we see God's face in joy? By the blood of Christ. How are we not punished as our sins deserved? Because Christ won for us an everlasting pardon by laying down his life as a ransom. How are we delivered from death and its eternal curse of God-forsaken darkness? We are by the healing power of Christ's resurrection. Thus, Elihu points us to Jesus Christ when we are weighed down in times of crushing hardships. When sick and near death, when we feel that God is silent, when suffering hounds us like prey, Elihu reminds us that we always have Jesus Christ. Flee to Jesus. Take refuge in the grace and love that flows from the cross. And this generous comfort and charity of Christ is not stingy or thin, but it's manifold, overflowing, and wildly effective. Elihu's tone may be a bit pompous, but he ushers us to the priestly mediation of Christ, which is basically the best wisdom ever. Always relevant and ever good advice. Moreover, Elihu's sound counsel reminds us that we need to hone our hearing towards God. The Lord is surely communicating to us, but we need to adjust our hearing aid to catch his voice. We need to find the right radio frequency that God broadcast on, which is his written and canonized word. Likewise, we should learn contentment with the methods of God's revelation. Griping about no signs or visions disparages the word as not good enough. It It faults the Lord for not heeding our whims. And yet the word of God is the chosen means of the Lord speaking to us. And what the Lord chooses is what is best for us. For in the word, Jesus himself speaks to us as the word of God made flesh. In the word, we get to listen to the amazing graces of the free gospel. We hear the mighty deeds of God. We hear about his tender mercy. And we get to listen to the perfect mediation of Christ. And these truths of Christ are the very power of God to save you from death and sin to sanctify you, to mature you in wisdom, and to keep you safe until the end. So that then we will pass safely through death and arrive on the sunny shores of the resurrection and life everlasting with Christ. Then we will see the face of Christ in joy and worship him forever. Praise the Lord. For the one mediator between God and humans, Jesus Christ. Come, Lord Jesus.